standard issue for all women. Hello, Jen here to tell you about this week's episode of The Sunday Chops. Frida Kahlo and Jean-Michel Basquiat are two pretty gargantuan names from the world of art, but what must it have been like to find yourself hanging out and growing up in both of their worlds? On one hand, pretty different, but on the other, actually, kind of a home from home, says Jennifer Clement, author of the new book Promise Party, Carlo, Basquiat and Me. In her memoir, Jennifer writes about her upbringing in a bohemian community in 1960s and 70s Mexico City, before moving to New York City as a dancer in the late 70s and living through the counterculture scene of the 1980s. It is a fascinating and beautifully written book and boy, oh boy, what a life. This week, I had the pleasure of chatting to her for Chops about her experiences, about storytelling, posthumous fame and the work she's undertaken as Penn International's only woman president to make sure that women's voices are heard and indeed celebrated. I loved talking to Jennifer and I hope that you enjoy this as much as I enjoyed our chat. I am joined by Jennifer Clement, award-winning author, poet and former and also the only woman president of Penn International. Jennifer, welcome. Thank you very much for joining me. Oh, I'm so happy to be here with you. Thanks for inviting me. You're in Mexico and you've just told me off air, as it were, that as people with the same name, there's a very specific way in which we would greet each other in Mexico. Could you could you repeat that for the listener, please? Yes. If we were here in Mexico, I would not call you Jen or Jennifer. I would call you Tocaya. And you would call me back Tocaya. Tocaya. Or Tocaya. We have the same name. I really like that. That's great. I don't know of anywhere else that does that. Uh, I always try to bond with people over a, a shared name because there's quite a lot of Jennifers in the world. And uh, I remember one time when I was a student in Brighton, we were trying to barter with a woman who ran a late night off license called Jennifer Shop. And I said to her, we've got the same name because you could only buy like really quite huge quantities of alcohol for quite a lot of money. And we were students, so we didn't want to do that. And uh, And she said to me, you stole my name. So, oh, that's great. Well, in Mexico, actually, there were no Jennifers at all. It was a very tricky name, and I always wished it were different. But now that we have Jennifer Lopez, oh. that is made very easy <laughs> because everybody here knows her. Praise <laughs> be to JLo for exactly. many, many <laughs> reasons. Anyway, I mean, this is great, and I could talk about JLo for quite a long time, to be honest, but. I want to talk about you, please, Jennifer, and specifically, I would like to talk about your book, The Promised Party, Carlo, Basquiat and Me. People might know you from your first book, Widow Basquiat, A Love Story, which is a memoir written from the perspective of Suzanne Malouk about her relationship with the famous artist. But there are plenty more to choose from because you have written quite a lot. Your new book, Promised Party, is your own story. Can you tell us a little bit about it, please? Yeah, so uh, I had written that um, other memoir. I, I actually do call it a memoir, even though it's Suzanne and, and Basquiat's story. I'm actually in it as Suzanne's best friend, which I continue to be. Very, very good friends with. And so uh, I think, you know, I wrote that in 1997, even before Jean-Michel Basquiat was so huge. And... I don't know, I think sort of looking back on my life, I was sort of able to see something I hadn't really been aware of before, that 
in Mexico, I had grown up with such an uh, such an artistic community and sort of an extraordinary moment in Mexico's history, sort of the end of an era. I always say I feel like I have the gold dust on my fingertips of that era. And I realized also that having grown up in Mexico in that world was probably because many people have asked me, well, how did you end up in that whole 80s scene in New York? And I think it was because of Mexico that I was open for that. I was looking for that. And then eventually I realized I wanted to write A Tale of Two Cities. So the first half is Mexico City. The second half is New York City. The New York part has all these stories that definitely are not in Widow Basquiat because I got to New York in 1978. Suzanne, the widow, got there in 1980. So, for example, I was already very close to people like Keith Haring or Colette Lumiere. So there are many stories. Most of the stories are not obviously not in Widow Basquiat. And then there's the whole Mexican side. So it's a tale of two cities. It's about those time. And it's also about my life. And it ends 27, memoir. That's where it stops. It's an extraordinary story and it's an extraordinary juxtaposition of two very different but I kind of took it as also kind of similar in a weird way worlds and I will come back to that point in a bit. I'm kind of interested before we go too deep into this one why it was that you chose to tell Suzanne's story even though you are in it and it and you do consider it a memoir why did you choose to tell that story before your own when there is so much interesting material in your own story to tell? Well, this was 30 years ago, basically, when I wrote um, Widow Basquiat. I had written many poems about her. So, I mean, she had a, obviously a kind of amuse-like quality to her because Jean-Michel painted her, Francesco Clemente painted her. Uh, there were quite a few artists who did paint her, and I wrote about her. So some of the very first poems that I ever wrote are the Suzanne poems that I wrote about her and I wrote about our friendship. And so it seemed sort of like a natural growth from the poems to try and create uh, a document that was uh, sort of more complete in a way. And I see the book, from my perspective, as a kind of book of love to her. And and. What was very interesting about writing uh, The Promised Party, because I had no idea this would happen, but I also see now that I've written it and I can sort of see it from a distance, that The Promised Party is also a book about female friendship. So I've been very fortunate in my life to have really fantastic girlfriends. And so I think Widow Basquiat honors that, that amazing friendship. And there's a lot about The Promised Party that is about female friendship, I would say. So to go back to your story of growing up, you grew up in Mexico City in the 60s and 70s, just across from where Rita Carlo and Diego Rivera lived. Obviously, they'd both died by the point at which uh, you guys had, had moved there. But you were among this kind of bohemian community of revolutionaries and ballerinas and, and artists and I wonder if you could tell us a little bit more about what that was like and and how it kind of molded you. Did it, did it occur to you at the time that it was quite an extraordinary way to grow up? No, it, it didn't occur to me and it didn't occur to me for ages. It was only sort of at this sort of 
point in my life looking back and people also my age writing memoirs about Mexico or even movies. I mean, the movie Roma, for example, is a memoir movie. Iñárritu's movie, is, Bardo, is also a memoir movie. And we're all sort of the same generation. And several Mexican writers also writing their memoirs. So I think it's sort of something to do with the time and being able to look back with distance. I just took it for granted. But I would say that about the New York years, too, because so many people say to me, God, Basquiat, and you were with this one and that one. But of course, they, they were nobody. Mm. Yeah, Basquiat was Basquiat. You know, it was it, the only person who was really famous was uh, Andy Warhol. Even Madonna was a bartender. You know, she wasn't famous. So, you know, I, it's only with distance and you see that perspective. But yes, in Mexico, what happened is that I was just a baby. My parents moved to Mexico and immediately decided they would not return to the United States, which is important because it is a story of expatriates or immigrants. These were not people that came to work here and were considering going back to the United States. So my father died here. Right now I'm actually in my mother's house. Uh, she's 95 in Mexico City. So immediately there was just a sense that this was a part of the world that, that we were going to belong to and be a part of. So I think that's quite a different way of landing. So it was because my mother's a painter, because my father um, was very involved in civil rights and human rights and in the sort of end of the hope of the communist movement when, you know, there were still people who felt perhaps the rough Russian Revolution was a good thing before everybody realized it was a really terrible thing. Um, so I was through my parents, completely involved in that world. And so we lived a block down from Diego Rivera and Frida Kahlo's uh, studio house. And when Frida died in 54, and I think Diego died in 19, 1958 or something like that, we arrived in 1960. And his Diego Rivera's daughter with her children moved into that. So I immediately with Diego Rivera's granddaughter, became my best friend. And actually, that house, now it's a museum. Even the name of the street has changed. It's called Diego Rivera Street, but it was called Palma Street because of the palm trees that were actually in front of our house. And so the house was just as they had left it, and the presence of all those people. And then as the memoir progresses, uh, you meet all these other people that are very famous writers, artists, architects, sculptors, intellectuals, writers. For example, I went to school with Gabriel Garcia Marquez's children and things like this. So I was just immersed in an intellectual, artistic environment immediately. So I wanted to ask you about Frida Kahlo. Obviously, you didn't know her. You, you knew Diego Rivera's grandchildren or many years ago now I went to an exhibition at the Tate Modern of her work and fell in love with it. It's interesting to me that her image has kind of been co-opted by a sort of like popular feminism light kind of mm -hmm. movement I guess which seems to be like largely because of you know the the monobrow basically. I wondered how she was regarded in Mexico at the time when you were growing up. So I think it's more than the unibrow. I mean, I think that, well, first of all, I can say she was adored. I mean, she was the, a very generous person, a very loving person. Uh, it, if you go to the Blue House, which was ended up being her principal house, 
because of her operations and she needed to have ramps and wheelchairs. Then she was in the latter part of her life, mostly in Coyoacan at the Blue House, although Diego was always at the studio house where I live. And so if you go into her bedroom uh, above her, right above, she painted the name Irene de Bofus, which was who was her great friend and also had a very conflicted big fight with her because I, I guess Irene had an affair with Diego and they had a big fight, but they then remained friends. And I was Irene's model when I was 16. She painted me, and I don't know where any of that is. Nobody knows what happened to her estate. But she said to me what I quote in the book, that, that Frida was, is a mirror where everybody can look inside, and any, any woman, excuse me, can look inside and see themselves. And I think that's true of Frida. I mean, when we think of the history of art, of which there are very few women painters, or let's face it, very few, but... Men painting women in general painted this idealized, beautiful view of women. And and Frida painted the pain. I mean, Frida painted, you know, blood running down your leg, uh, you know, abortions. Also, the terrible pain that, that can happen when you love a man and he's constantly unfaithful and he lies to you. So, I mean, there's also a whole expression, her experience as a woman in love. Um, which has not been portrayed in painting historically. I mean, there's a lot of pain that men have painted of, let's say, the Virgin Mary and her pain at the death of her son and and the whole, the, no, all the, 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 the pain over the death of Christ. I mean, that is all over the place and very moving and very beautiful. But this is something different, what Frida did. And so that's why I think she's so big, is that she has portrayed something that nobody ever portrayed and that many women identify with and say, oh, well, I, I can see myself in that. I have felt those things in my body and in my art and in my mind. And just to be clear, I absolutely agree with you. I think that is that is absolutely it. I guess my point was that it's been co-opted by, I think, people who probably have no idea what her no work idea. actually yeah, is. Yeah. No. And I guess the, the, the unibrow... Because she's this like strikingly beautiful woman who has yeah. this sort of what we would consider by modern standard imperfection emblazoned across her face. And I think people see that as a symbol of resistance of some sort, like a rejection but of something. But the thing is that, that it's complex because what they don't paint so much, people aren't so aware of this perhaps, but she really played with androgyny. So she also had a mustache, yeah. and, and and she, you know, she painted herself very often with a mustache. Yeah. And uh, there are paintings and photographs of her just as a man. I mean, completely taking on a male persona. So she 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 played with that, you know. And uh, complex woman, very complex, fascinating woman, and certainly very loved. I mean, everybody because then I was. Very good friends with the Mizraki Davidoff family, who all knew Frida. I mean, Frida was it was like her family, basically. So um, my friend Aline, who's in the book, her sister was Frida's goddaughter. So I had a lot of Frida stories from them as well. And you know, everybody just loved her. She had some sort of real charisma, and and a big heart. And anybody who came in contact with her, from what I understand, from everybody who knew her, were really modified and touched by that contact. 
So sort of on the subject of rebels, you the way you describe yourself as a, you know, a child and a, a young person growing up, you've always been a bit of a rebel. Uh, you expelled from the Girl Guides, age 12, for insubordination and smoking. But at the same time, you're sort of committing yourself to the discipline of dance. Or do you think that that was, in its own way, a sort of act of, of rebellion? Yeah, I mean, it was hard to write about the rebellion because obviously it's hard to write about oneself, you know. But I just said, how how can I write about this? And and um, And yeah, I mean, I've always had a really big problem with authority. I mean, it's I'm recognize this about myself. And so it's 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 a combination of, of having trouble with authority and always um rebelling uh against and I think what I found in dance was sort of parallel world. So rebel being free or being rebellious rebellious doesn't necessarily mean that you're unable to to have a kind of interior discipline. I think the discipline, it becomes something that, that you seek out and, and you become your own sort of authority of yourself. I remember very clearly when I quit smoking and I was a tremendous smoker, that I knew that I had to do it because if a doctor would tell me, you must quit smoking, he would have become or she would have become an authority figure to me. And I know that that's bad for me. It detonates <laughs> So, uh, yeah, so I'm I'm conscious of it. But I don't think that the, the dance contradicts it. And so it's sort of dancing that kind of takes you to 1980s New York as well, right? And it feels like the, the idea of it, you know, like Studio 54, Basquiat, et cetera, et cetera, like it's kind of like extremely glamorous and cool. But obviously, as you say, you didn't know that at the time because it you know this has become something later on i guess also i mean it's pretty well documented but maybe you could tell me a bit about it there's a pretty seedy underbelly as well right oh yeah very seedy i mean studio 54 the place itself wasn't seedy but a lot of seedy things were going on there you know they're like the mud club or dance terrier those places they were in and of themselves rather seedy but and seedy things were going on there I mean, I don't know, CD. I don't know actually if CD is the word. It was a moment of drugs. It was a great moment for the gay movement. And I hope I express that, that at least in the United States, you know, there was still so much stigma still. And so for, for the gay community to be able to go to San Francisco, to be able to go to New York and be free and be accepted and, and to be able to be there, it was a big deal. It's, you know, it really was. And that was the birth of all the sort of gay baths and gay clubs. And it was magical, that kind of freedom. But as I say in the book, it it, it ended very quickly with AIDS. Yeah. You know, with this blooming, beautiful moment that came to an end. Because suddenly sex and freedom and love and all that was equal to death. It became an equation, a crazy equation. And that I remember so well when I had children at some stage having to explain to them that, that sex can be death. I mean, it's it's complex. It was what happened there, you know. In some ways, it feels almost like, you know, not not the, the sex being death bit of it, obviously. <laughs> it, it feels almost like a home from home because you go from this one kind of bohemia to another, right? Yeah, it's true. 
although the bohemia of Mexico was a bohemia of, of childhood, and so I don't, it wasn't something I really chose. It was something that I, I was following my parents through. Then I talk about my adolescence as, you know, the transition to young adulthood. And there I, I'm able to see that there are more decisions that I'm taking and choosing which friends in choosing to leave ballet and move into modern dance with this extraordinary teacher, choreographer, actually the person who founded modern dance in Mexico, and then going to New York as a dancer. Uh, all those things were of my choosing. But yeah, I, you know, when I wrote it and I was able to sort of see the tapestry of what I'd written, I could see that I could pull a thread from Mexico and knot it with a thread from New York, you know, so there were things that that were echoing and mirroring in the two cities and in the two lives, definitely. So not to go on about Basquiat, but obviously it, it does feel now, it feels like, you know, what, what an incredible world to have been part of. But as you say, you didn't know it at the time. And a bit like Frida Kahlo as well, that kind of image of him has become more famous and iconic posthumously. What is it like to witness that of someone that you actually know? It must be really surreal, right? Yeah, I mean, on one hand, it's very surreal. And on the other hand, it's kind of terrible because he died. And and he died, you know, when he was young, 26 years old. And we all lived that death. We, We all sort of thought, well, you know, the expectation was always dying of AIDS for all of us, but he died in an overdose of heroin. Some of his friends feel very conflicted about how commercializing his work and would that have been um, horrible to him? I mean, I think people that knew him, we try and project a little bit into like, how would he have felt about all of this? I remember seeing a sort of thread online of people outraged. For example, there was a doormat, a Basquiat doormat, and now that just felt like really weird and and maybe not good. But he also had such a great sense of humor that I sort of think he would be laughing a lot at everything that's going on and sort of amused by it. But there was no way to to know that he would become this huge. Mm. I mean, this really huge, you know. And and actually, when I think of Widow Basquiat, I mean, I wrote that book really from such a place of innocence because he wasn't what he is today at all. In fact, I, I write it in The Promised Party because I did, since I do also see the book as sort of the story of the artist as a young woman, like how did I become a writer and how did I care about intellectual ideas and why did I care about what was happening in the world and freedom of expression and all these things. I wanted people to understand because right now, Widow Basquiat is is a very successful book. People really love it. It's being made into a series and all these things are happening with that book. And so I did want to say in, in The Promised Party that it was rejected by 19 publishers. I mean, nobody took the book. It sat in my drawer for three years before Canongate published it. And they were the only people who published it. And to this day... You know, in the United States, it's not very well published where you think it would, you know, it's never been in hardcover, for example. It's published in vintage, which is sort of like old news. So, yeah, so I wanted the readers to realize, you know, careers are complex and that 
things that are new in general are rejected. And since the form is very different and it's written with, you know, as a sort of song between two voices, I write Suzanne's voice. She, it's not an interview. She doesn't write it. Some people get confused by that, that don't understand literary forms, but to a two-voiced piece, you know, and even ha- having the name Basquiat in the title. I mean, many of those rejection letters said, who is Basquiat and why should we care about his girlfriend? That was a lot of the things, like, why should we care about his girlfriend, who has become extraordinary? She's a doctor with a specialty in psychiatry. And so I just wanted to put that in so people would realize that this this wasn't so easy on one hand. And on the other hand, within my time, you know, Basquiat still wasn't that important, not important enough to publish the book and buy it. I think that sort of leads us quite neatly into the last sort of area that I want to ask you about. You are you no longer the president, but you are the only woman who has ever been the president of Penn International. You worked on the Women's Manifesto. Uh, you've done a lot of work to pioneer women's writing. I was telling you before we started recording about how I had written a book about football, and you told me fascinatingly that you have an anthology of poetry about football that you you were sort of sitting on. It's hard out there for a non-fiction woman writer. It's, I mean, it's hard for women writers. Full stop. Uh, full stop. Not only you know for for loads of reasons, including finding the time to write when you know we don't get paid well enough for it to be our main job. Most of us who are doing it. So and you know balancing that with a, another career or children or other caregiving duties, etc. Can you tell us a little bit about that and, and the the ways in which you've sort of tried to platform women's writing and, and lift women up? So when I when I was elected and the first woman and only woman, to me it was very important that my mandate was to do more, as much as I could for women writers. So the first thing I did was change the charter because for a hundred years the charter said that we would combat all hatreds of race, nationality, and um, mass. But where was gender? Hello? Probably one of the biggest hates that exists. And so it took me two years to change the charter to a lot of the argument at that time was, yeah, gender, but what about this hatred? And what about, you know, hate against, you know, gay people? Or what about the hate against, you know, old people or people with disability? I mean, the, actually, the hate list is very long, right? So we um, negotiated it to be all hatreds, that Penn would combat all hatreds. And uh, the word equality was introduced into the into this charter because, of course, in 1921, there was no concept of equality. So that was not even there at all. So, and then I did the Women's Manifesto, which has become this extraordinary document that has been taken on by UN Women, taken on by UNESCO, And basically, my idea around that document is that so much of feminism has been about anger and not enough, I feel, about sorrow, the sorrow of what has been lost. I mean, we're talking about the imagination, creativity, and discovery of more than half of the population for hundreds and hundreds of years. Mm -hmm. So it's missing knowledge. And uh, so I wanted to address, I wanted to sort of go through that door. And I think that may be one of the reasons that it's been so successful is that it's just like another another way to look at the problem. And uh, then the other thing I did was create the Vita count in all the pen centers around the world where they would count how many women had been published, how many had received reviews, 
um, how many had won prizes. And of course, everywhere in the world, the th everything is catastrophic. I mean, if you go to India or if you go to almost any Asian country or Latin American country, I mean, the situation is bad in general. You know, there may only be, you know, one publishing house or maybe one prize or no prizes. And so the thing that I realized in doing all this work is that let's just look, focus for a minute on the English language, which is the most successful language for women writers. Even within English, if a woman wins a prize for her novel, something like 95% of the time the protagonist is a man. So we still feel that the male story is mm. the most important story. Uh, the other thing that we discovered is that almost in general, women writers are compared to other women writers. Yes. So let's say I write a book, which I did about guns uh, that takes place in the South of the United States. I will be compared to Flannery O'Connor, but I will never be compared to William Faulkner. I mean, that is not going to happen. And then the other thing that we realized that it's in general women reviewing women that in general men feel that it's kind of a lesser job to review a book written by a woman. So that's just in English. So imagine what is going on. And then the other thing, because Penn is a human rights organization and we work a lot with women, uh, with writers in prison, writers in exile, writers that are threatened. So how do we know that somebody is a writer? Like when we take a case list and decide, because we do a, a very intensive study to find out, A, do they need our help? Do they want our help? But are they worthy of the help? Are they, are they really a writer? And so how do you decide who's a writer? Well, you look at their prices and you look at their publications and at their reviews, and then you say, yes, this person is a writer. But if you're a woman, you're not probably going to have all those things that are going to open the door to help. And so there's so many aspects of this that that are very harmful to women and, and need to be addressed. And then I, you know, I did the best I could to sort of at least bring the, all of this into pen. What is next for you? What have you got coming up after this? Oh, good question. I, I have other books I'm working on, um, but it's just too soon. I'm a little superstitious, so it's, it's, not, it's not something I can really talk about. But one of the things that will be happening this year is I'll be um, doing publicity around The Promised Party, and it's already been sold to be a movie. Wow. In fact, I've had the film director, who's from the UK, here, taking him all over Mexico City and showing him places. So there's a lot going on. Yeah, that's fantastic. Oh, my goodness. How exciting. I'm just going to say it again. Do the football anthology. I would 100% <laughs> read that. Okay. So, Jennifer, <laughs> where, where can we follow you on social media? So on Twitter, I'm at um, Clement Mexico, and then I have my website, which is where I put news and all kinds of things, which is jenniferclement.org. Jennifer, it's been absolutely delightful to speak with you. Promise Party is published on January the 18th by Canongate. It's a fantastic read. Thank you so much for joining me. Oh, thank you, Jen. Okay, yeah. <laughs> Standard Issue for All Women.